Today, I'm excited to be joined by an old friend of mine, Phil Hospod. Phil is the founder and CEO of Dovetailing Co., a group that owns, operates, and develops imaginative and storied hotel experiences. Today, we dive into how Phil came up in the hotel biz, what advice he'd give to those who want to start a hotel group, and why the restaurateur might want to consider adding hotels to their portfolio. Let's get into it. Welcome to Guest Getter, the best place for restaurateurs to learn the art and science of getting more new guests, getting guests coming back more often, and getting guests spending more per visit so that you can be more profitable and do more of what you love. My name's Kyle Guilfoyle. Let's hit it. Phil, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, so I always like to ask the, the same question right off the hop, which is how would you describe your particular area of expertise or, you know, your zone of genius? My zone of genius is that I uh, am able to pull together a wide variety of skills um, that are somewhat divergent. And yet somehow I'm able to kind of like bring it all together and, uh, and drive it forward. And I think what I mean by that is in the hotel business, you have to be able to like have a meeting with a banker and like go through financial projections, but also sit down with like a brand strategist and a graphic designer and bring that kind of financial business plan to life in a uh, emotionally um, connective way. And that's most probably uh, a, a part of my secret sauce. So yeah, really that, kind of high level, you're wearing a lot of hats and you're, you're sort of, you're, you're the orchestrator. I'm curious, what's, what's, what's one thing about being that orchestrator that you wish you had learned years ago? One, so I've been fortunate enough that I, I guess I got lucky, but I, I landed in this industry uh, right out of undergrad uh, where we met in, in, in London, Ontario. But um so I've been in the industry for a while, which is great. Um, and But even then, like starting my own business, I think one of the things that really sort of uh, I took for granted was just the organizational component of a business and the back office and like, like all this sort of nonsense that goes into being a startup um, and like cash management and HR and accounting and insurance and all that kind of stuff. So none of the sexy stuff, um, but I think that was kind of an element of the business that uh, I could have been a little more uh, briefed on prior to starting Dovetail. Hmm, yeah, I feel like I feel like I could have been better briefed on that as well. Well, so Bill, uh, you and I actually met quite a while ago, uh, even before London, Ontario, back in sure. I've probably known you since I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. And uh, and I don't know if you know this, but you actually left quite a mark on me. I, I think you're you're part of the reason I was inspired to go into business. I remember you would be hanging out with you know my cousin, Andrew, or, or even your friends, I, I recall. And you'd always be having uh, enterprising and entrepreneurial conversations. And I think that that really sparked something in me. I also remember that before you had decided to go into business, you wanted to be a cardiac surgeon. <laughs> and I specifically remember you telling me that you wanted to do that because it was the hardest thing you could possibly do or something like that. And I would love it if you could take us back to the shift from that 
cardiologist aspiration to the one where you are, you know, you went into the world of business. Could you do that? Yeah, I know. You're absolutely right. Uh, you're digging deep here. Um, so I initially was going down a healthcare path. Um, and you're right. I, I did it because I was like, what's the hardest thing to get into in, in, in undergrad? Oh, medicine. Oh, surgery. Okay. That's what I want to do. If that's the hardest thing, then, you know, I, I like a challenge. And I was going down that path. And along the way, I sort of realized, like, I don't actually have a passion for sort of healthcare. And I'm like, this is, and then, you know, I sort of realized that, like, well, this is, this is the type of industry, like, if you don't have a passion for it, you're gonna, you're gonna burn out. And I think it's probably true for any industry, but I think healthcare in particular. And so, you know, always in my free time, I'm concocting all sorts of miscellaneous, like startups and entrepreneurial ventures. And it was, that was always like the thing I was doing for fun on the side. And so I think at some point I realized like, wait, why am I, why am I focused on the thing I don't have a passion for, but like having, you know, side hustles that I'm actually enjoying. And um, somewhere along those, somewhere along that path prior to undergrad, realized I should shift and focus on what I am excited about. Um, and I definitely felt that, you know, business allowed, it's, it can be as challenging as you want it to be and as creative as you want it to be and as entrepreneurial. And I think it's, um, I found, I found a home. I definitely feel like this is an industry and a business that uh, will be exciting for me for the rest of my life, frankly. That's awesome. Could you, could you tell us about your first side hustle? So the, the first one that was like above board was most probably um, just like, a, like a you know a student painting outfit with with Seth Ross, um, you know, high school student, high school uh, buddy of mine in Montreal, and we called ourselves wet paint student painters, and we ran around painting fences uh, in Montreal, which was great. But like somewhere, like I lived in some pretty remarkable places around the world: Malaysia, Iran, Poland, and like in in Iran, I would they had like bootlegged like mixtapes that nobody had in Montreal. So I was like trying to send back like mixtapes and get people to like send dollar, like dollars back in the envelope. And I was mostly 12 at the time. And then in Poland, they had like firecracker. I mean, just sort of nonsense along the way to try to like, you know, buy something for a buck and sell it for two. Sounds, sounds fun. And uh, so you, you, you decided to go to the Ivy School of Business, which is uh, quite a, a good school, quite a good business school in London, Ontario, which, which is where I'm uh, from, as it turns out, could you could you tell us a bit about that experience and how it how it shaped your your trajectory? Yeah, I think Ivy was instrumental in 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 sort of teaching me how to like approach the world of business and how to think through problems, um, and also how to like put in the work. Um, they you sort of they set it up as a professional school it sort of mimics the MBA program. So it's two years, it's, you know, five days a week, show up at whatever it was, 8.30 and, you know, do a full day and then groups. And so the, you know, right from the get-go, you realize, okay, it sort of prepares you for the real world in terms of, you know, both kind of on the professionalism side, but also just a way of thinking about the world and problem solving and, and figuring out how to kind of create value uh, for your stakeholders. Um, it's interesting. One of the things I think they excelled at is they 
they really teach you how to become leaders in, in the business world, sort of when you get there. But, but like when you come right out of school, they don't, you don't always have like the same set of like hard skills uh, that like coming out of like an accounting school or an engineering school or something of that nature. So it's kind of interesting how the first couple of years you sort of come out of Ivy and you're like, okay, like I got to learn on the fly, which is fine because you're, you're used to doing that as part of the case study approach at Ivy. But then like five, 10, 20 years out, you're like, okay, those, you know, those skills and that network can continue to uh, support my development um, in the business world. Awesome. Could, is there, is there one major takeaway from that experience that you could pull out of, out of your hat that has had the biggest impact on your, your success? Um, I talked about being a generalist. Mm-hmm. And I think Ivy approaches business as effectively as a generalist program. So you are taking marketing classes, HR classes, operations classes, you know, you're, you're taking the kind of the wide spectrum of, of business. So you don't, so I think that you, you, there's some like, there's some kind of finessing thereafter, but for the most part, you, you're a generalist, which I think in the hotel development operation space is an important one. Um, but, you know, I think I always also just got a kick out of, you know, some of the specific sort of operational excellence classes that teach you how to, uh, the, the, this idea of, of like project management and an assembly line and sort of the statistical analysis that goes into that. And I think I've always been, I've always gotten a kick out of, uh, event planning in the sense of like coming up with an idea and then following through on it per a schedule and budget. Um, and I think that's always been something that, uh, I found fulfilling. And uh, so, I, you know, I I knew you fairly well. Like I knew you, you know, better than I, I do now from you know the time I was a kid, and then you know you you went to Ivy. And um, could you could you give us the Coles Notes version of the path you took from Ivy to where you are today with with Dovetailing Co? Yeah, for sure. So we're uh, so. Um, for a year in the last year of Ivy, uh, interned, sort of did like a student consulting project with Four Seasons, and that kind of gave me the first taste into the hotel business, and they were based in Toronto, which is great. Um, then uh, first job was of Introwest, ski resort developer, kind of the master plan communities at the base of these mountains. That was based in Montreal, uh, and we focused on kind of the northeast region, Tremblant, uh, Mountain Creek, um, and so that was, uh, that's what kind of got me into development, hospitality, the mix of the two. Uh, from there, uh, moved to New York City in 2006, um, where started working for this uh, kind of entrepreneurial firm called Gemini Real Estate. And sort of half my time uh, in the beginning was on retail developments and the other half was on boutique hotel developments uh, in New York, uh, Boston, Miami and was with Gemini for eight years. Um, during the recession of sort of in 2008 and 20, 2009, I went to grad school in Columbia. Um, so was able to kind of further my education, focused in real estate uh, at a time when there wasn't as many deals getting done. And then kind of came out of that, uh, finished up a couple of projects of Gemini, which was great. And then uh, joined Sedell Group, uh, which I think, you know, at the time they were doing a, you know, some of the best boutique hospitality projects in the world uh, and got a chance to work on a hundred year old building in Los Angeles called the Freehand LA, 
um, in DC converted an old uh, Christian Science Church uh, that was abandoned into a luxury boutique hotel called the Line DC. It was 220 uh, new new rooms as a new tower built behind the church, and the church was converted into kind of three different restaurants and bars. Uh, so that was super exciting. And then also in New York, uh, converted a 600-room dormitory into a 400-room uh, kind of boutique hotel called the Freehand uh, New York. And so, you know, with Sedell, really got to oversee some kind of you know, potentially once in a lifetime types of projects. And it gave me the confidence and the track record to go out on my own um, and founded Dovetail in 2018 with uh, a similar ambition and intent to work on creative real estate uh, in markets where we thought we could make an impact um, and ones that potentially were a little less competitive as well for, for our investors. Um, you know, and since then, we've, we've got six, six hotels or projects right now, which is uh, pretty wild. And it was a little touch and go in there during the pandemic, uh, for sure. Um, but we took advantage and were able to uh, acquire three hotels. And now we've got a portfolio that ranges from Hawaii, Waikiki to Bermuda, um, Newport, San Diego, New York City, and the Catskills. So uh, definitely got some geographic <laughs> spread, but we have local partners within each of these markets that give us the ability to execute on the local front. And so at Dovetail, we focus on uh, acquisition, capitalization, design, branding, um, and then kind of creating a business plan and following through on that with a local partner that runs the kind of the day-to-day -day management. Amazing. Very, very cool. Congratulations on all that. Yeah, I, thank you. You know, beyond, beyond having the confidence that comes from a track record, I'd love it if you could take us to that moment where you took, took the leap from Sidel Group to your own thing. So I think I always knew that I was going to go on my own at some point. Um, and even when I was at, I mean, even before interest, even when I was at Ivy, I was putting in offers on buildings that I had no idea about. And I honestly, if I won them, I wouldn't have known what to do with it. And then same thing happened when I, when I was at, uh, at IntroS. I was like looking at a little development in the Laurentians and I was like, oh, this is a cute little cottage, cottage resort. And I was like, I went... And thankfully, none of that played up, panned out. Um, so, and this sort of happened along the way a few times. And I got really close before joining Sedell, actually, after Gemini, um, here in Rhode Island, I came really close to, to buying a property and it, it just sort of slipped away. Um, and so, you know, sometimes you, you just need the, you kind of have to, it takes a long time. Like everyone just sort of assumes that it's like, you know, it just happens on one day. It never happens on one day. Like it happens over a very long period of time. And there may be some like false starts along the way. Um, so there were a couple of, you know, opportunities along the way that I was hoping to like fall through on and didn't work. And then, um, you know, when it did finally uh, come together, uh, I had, you know, I, I sort of realized sort of as the hotels opened of Sedell that it was a, a really natural period of time to potentially transition and really kind of focus on growing my own business. And at the same time, an opportunity came to me in Newport, Rhode Island, where uh, my wife's family lives, where we got married. So I knew the market really well um, and the timing worked out. So I basically kind of transitioned into starting Dovetail when this opportunity in Newport um, came about. And that was the mainstay, which we converted into the Wayfinder in Newport. Very cool. And there's something very romantic about what you built with, with Dovetail you know, creating storied and imaginative experiences that no doubt leave an indelible mark on your guests. Like if any of the listeners ch check out Dovetail & Co, the properties are spectacular. 
I can't help but think that others would love to build something similar. So my question for you is what advice would you give to the person who wants to build a hotel group over, let's say the next three to five years? Um, I think you start with one project and follow and, and, you know, do it in a place you understand so that you're like, if you're able, if, if you understand who the guest is, because either you are the guest, like the Catskills is basically my own, like we're targeting New, York, New Yorkers in my demographic that want kind of an escape to nature, but still have a fine dining and drinking experience. So like, I know, I know that guest, that's me. <laughs> so like, if you, so if you start with, start with a, an opportunity and a, and a guest profile that you understand, and then make sure you execute on it. Like, don't focus on deal two, three, four, until you know that deal one is on on track and like and if that takes five years then let it take five years because um the last thing you need is to have failed projects along the way um because one you won't be able to build from a failed like a track record of failed projects and two like failed projects are just they suck up all your time like it, they never get easier they just get harder so you know and so i think just making sure that first project checks all the boxes in terms of capital structure, location, guest profile, um, you know, and, and something that, you know, you can follow through on. I know you, you know, your primary focus is in the restaurant world. There have been a lot of great restaurateurs that have been dipping their toe in the hotel space. And I think a lot of what makes a great restaurateur or, or bar owner is what you need in the hotel space. You need attention to detail. You need to be, you know, really guest and customer focused. You need to be creative in your, uh, in your execution, your marketing, your storytelling, and you need to create word of mouth. And especially on the small, in the smaller hotel side, you need to, you know, you need to build from word of mouth. And um, so I do think that uh, a great restaurateur has the ability to grow into the hotel space. Um, especially if you're kind of in a smaller hotel space, I think it gets, a, you know, you need a, some different skill sets when you get into the bigger hotels, but um, there's definitely some parallels there. Restaurant owners, operators, and managers, before we continue with the episode, I want to ask you a question. Do you know if your marketing is working? Most restaurant owners are relying solely on organic social media and word of mouth marketing. While these are both powerful, they ultimately leave the growth of your restaurant to chance. You can't control algorithms and you certainly can't control what people do, but you can use a system that will have a huge impact over time. I'd love to show you the guest magnet method. It's a simple but cohesive system that will accelerate the growth of your restaurant in a way that you can measure. It is backed by ROI, a return on your investment. If you wanna learn about the most powerful way to grow your restaurant sales this year, send an email to kyle at guestgetter.co with magnet in the subject line and I'll get you all the details. All right, back to the show. So I, I imagine that the biggest mental barrier that likely comes up for most people who are thinking about starting a hotel or a restaurant or anything is probably capitalization, right? You, you need money to make it happen it doesn't necessarily need to be the money that's in your bank account. Now, how would you, how would you guide somebody who maybe isn't well-resourced or well-capitalized? How would you suggest they go about getting, getting capitalized? Yeah. And I think that's the challenging part about the real estate business and, and the hotels are an extension of that. And it requires a lot of capital. Um, and it's definitely, 
uh, when I realized I love the industry, but I also want to be an entrepreneur, I was like, man, how am I going to do this? I don't have this huge bank account that's going to let me just start buying up hotels and like going through with it. And so um, one of the benefits of having a strong track record and showing that you can pull this off at a larger level for in a more sophisticated manner is that you're able to attract partners and investors that want to put money to work um, and want exposure to the space. And so you can then tell them with full conviction and confidence that, you know, I'm going to be a fiduciary for your investment and I'm going to take care of it. And we're going to, you know, and we're going to work as hard as possible to follow through on the promises we've made. That, um, like the better your track record, track record is, the easier it is to most probably have that conversation with capital that you may not know as well. If you don't have a track record, then, then or maybe you have a track record in a different field, but like, you're like at some point, you know, you've got to, you've got to sort of, you, you got to capitalize the project. So if you don't have the track record, you may need to like partner with someone who maybe has a track record in real estate and they know how to buy like offices and retail and like rental buildings, but they don't understand restaurants or like the hospitality of it. And then you maybe come in as like the operator or sweat equity and you kind of sort of form a partnership that way where you have a capital partner that helps underwrite the real estate and you bring in the kind of the operational expertise you may you know the, the the roles and responsibilities will have to get defined but that could be a way for someone to get into the ownership management game without having to source the capital themselves um, in my situation because i came from a background of acquisitions and development i was able to sort of bring it all under one house so that the capitalization and sort of the operations are kind of run through projects through dovetail yeah, really what it seems like Dovetail does exceptionally well is, like we said earlier, orchestrate all the all the pieces that need to be there so that capital can come in with confidence. And, you know, yeah, so I, I love that. And something else you said is that restaurateurs are, many of them are dipping their toe into the hotel space, um, which I'm, I'm sure isn't anything new per se. I'm curious why you think a restaurateur would, would want to perhaps explore the hotel space. Well, I mean, I think most probably the, the number one reason is the the rooms, the, the margins on your rooms is significantly better than the margins on your on the on the restaurants. Yeah. So if you're able to get a few more rooms upstairs and run it and run a restaurant downstairs, you're able to to potentially drive a lot more uh, income to the bottom line. Um, so that's most probably the number one reason. And then also like in the hotel space, the restaurant and the bar is usually the hardest part to operate. So if if you can operate the restaurant you'll figure it like operating the rooms is pretty straightforward um so and i think restaurateurs are seeing that and they're realizing like wait a minute like this is so much easier than what i'm doing day in day out like in the restaurant space and it's more profitable why am i not in that space as well so i yeah. think it's you know it's sort of like a natural extension yeah i, I can imagine anyone who's grown up in the restaurant space if they were to you know, no offense, but if they were to move over to the hotel space, it'd probably be like, holy shit, this is <laughs> this is a lot, yeah, a lot simpler. Um, not not to say that it's easy. And so, up to uh, up to this point on the podcast, in you know, full disclosure, most most of our guests have, have been restaurateurs or or owners and operators, and we, you know, we usually talk a bit about marketing. So I'm curious if you could give us a high level look at what a successful hotel marketing strategy looks like. Yeah, so um, 
I'm trying to figure out where to start with this. It's a, it's a big, it's a big question. Yeah, it's yeah, a big question. It's a big question. But I, I think what's interesting is uh, there's okay. So when, when you build out a uh, like a business plan, you just you talk about rooms revenue, which is really the number of rooms you have times the average daily rate. ADR is our kind of metric for for room rate times your occupancy, which is uh, a percentage of your total rooms that are sold. And that's what's called RevPAR or revenue per available room. And then you can multiply that by 365 days. And that's your targeted room revenue for the year. Now, um, a like let's say it's a $100 room rate to keep the math easy. $100 sold can be sold, like that room can be sold 50 different ways. And they each come with their own like benefits and negatives. And if you have a small hotel, so like we only have 28 rooms in the Catskills in our, in our lodge, we sell only directly on our website and through email and through phone calls. Now that, uh, that limits our distribution. So our, you know, we, we, we only market it for, the, for direct channel sort of conversions. But what that allows us to do is um, we don't have to pay online commissions to like the Expedia's and the hotels.com of the world. And that's like 15 to 22% of your top line. Like that's when you think about, you know, the margins the hotel margins are anywhere between kind of 20 to 40%, depending on sort of where you fit within the full service, select service, you know, urban resort world. That's still like a meaningful Can I, amount. May, may I interrupt? Very sorry yeah. to interrupt here. I'm really curious when, when a hotel does acquire a customer through an Expedia or one of those sites, they also they obviously get the customer data too, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. I just wanted so, to. I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you if you sign up through Expedia, they have your credit card, they have your information, and they hope that you're going to use Expedia to like book in New York and book in Newport and book wherever, and then they're going to cross market and send you promotions and all that kind of stuff. As so in Newport, we use that. And then what we hope to do is when you get to Newport, we hope we get your email address and you fill it out and you start following us on Instagram and then we can kind of market to you. And then hopefully the next time you love it so much, you'll book with us directly. Um, but if you're able to, to market directly, the other benefit is uh, they tend to be, they're more your people. If and, and by that, I mean like people that are choosing your hotel and your experience specifically for what you're trying to put out in terms of the product and the design and the, and the service style. And then the reason that is hopefully better than, than if you just get someone for the same price point on TravelZoo is that they're gonna love the experience better. And then they're gonna, they're gonna hopefully be, become repeat guests and hopefully become ambassadors for the hotel. And so when they're back in the city, say, oh, I had such an amazing time at the Urban Cowboy Lodge and that you should totally check it out. They're awesome. And we've noticed that that, so we try to market to that guest, even if it's the same price point, or frankly, even if it's a little bit less, because we're not giving up 15%, you know, through the, 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 the online booking channel, but the online, the, the folks that book through Expedia, they may just do it because it's a cheap rate. And then they show up and they're like, oh, you know, it, it, you know, where's my, where's my, I'm trying to think what, what we don't have. Oh, we don't have like drawers, like, you know, how like old school hotels have the drawers under the TVs. We don't have those in some of our rooms. And we'll get complaints about how, why we don't have drawers. And then they don't want to tell their friends about staying at the Wayfinder because there's no drawers. And we're like, so you, okay, so you get, you, you, you get like a bunch of Karens, a bunch of basic <laughs> folks. <is> that... <laughs> Yeah, and like, you know, in Newport, it's a 200-room hotel. Like, we don't have a choice. We have to, like, market more widely to, to fill the rooms because the other part, you know, in the restaurant is the same. It's like, if you don't sell a room on a night, that inventory is expired and you can't sell it the next day. 
So you've got to fill your inventory and you've got to sell it and you've got to, but you're hoping to market to people that love it and cherish it and will become ambassadors for the brand. Um, and uh, we do that through, so we do that through like the, you know, Instagram is a big, uh, a big source for uh, travel advertising, both just organic and sort of, uh, but also paid, we use paid social, paid Insta, paid, uh, paid Facebook. Um, and then, in, you know, a lot of Google AdWords um, are used sort of geofenced, both for target markets and kind of target words. Um, and then kind of PR is used both for like general stories and then kind of like promotion driven stories where we're trying to do like, hey, work from work from the work from the wayfinder for a week. And, you know, we give three nights free if you stay for four and like stuff like that around the pandemic, we were kind of promoting as well. Yeah, so what you what you uh, put into your paid ads, like what what is the lure there? What uh, what does that content look like? It's, I mean, most of it is like keywords, right? We're trying to get people, hey, boutique hotel in Newport, and we're trying to catch people off of like the, the sort of the traditional uh, search terms that they're going to use. And how about how about like Facebook, where it's more of like an interruption style of you know there there aren't keywords there. What, so what, what about that? Yeah, so we'll use uh, promotion-driven uh, ads that we think will have pickup. So, for instance, we were running uh, a uh, like I can't remember our chart. It was called like the dine and dine and crash or dine and stay, where if you spent like 150 bucks at the restaurant, you got the, a free hotel night on like a Wednesday. That's we had a lot of like we didn't Wednesdays was like a slow was a, was a slow day. This was earlier in the spring, and we were trying to get people to also like enjoy our restaurant, which was great. And we're like, you know, everyone does the opposite. They they like, hey, you buy a hotel room, we'll give you a free dinner. We're like, why don't we do the reverse? Um, and it worked out. We got we got we got some press around it like locally, and then we were using that also. Sort of, so we created a promotion around that, and then we pushed it out through some of these uh, channels. Awesome. One thing I, I want to touch on as well, because it's a really similar thing, you know, like the Expedias are to hotels, what uh, Uber Eats is to restaurants. And I cannot help but think, you know, like Uber Eats and Skip the Dishes, yes, yes, they take a hefty margin the, the first time. They've also spent millions of dollars on, you know, marketing those those apps and getting the impressions and so for, from my perspective, I feel like they can be a very powerful part of, of, a, of a marketing mix to get a customer because the, the goal in restaurants is not to get a customer one time, it's to get a customer several times, right? So once you, you've used those tools to then get them into your world and you own that data, you can then get them to come back again and again. You can speak to them however the hell you want, trust uh, or um, assuming that they're not you know, basic. Uh, or Karen's. Um, and so do you think that, do you, do you think an approach like that could, could work for hotels or would you, do you prefer to just like your approach seems very direct to consumer, right? You're just, you, you're, you're going to get them through an ad or through organic stuff on your own channels. And then you are going to market them, you know, with email or, or text or whatever. Um, could you, could you ever see those tools playing into your mix or would you prefer to keep it really like, you know, just your own sort of thing? So we, it's, it's, I think it's similar. Like we, we 
right now we, we aspire to get to like 60 to 70% direct and sort of 30 to 40% through uh, intermediaries. Mm-hmm. Um, right now we're most probably like 50, 50 in, in Newport. And we, we hope we can convert the booking.com guest into a wayfinder guest and someone that is an ambassador for wayfinder. So I think, and, and we, you know, and, and so we do that full, you know, knowing and we pay a price for it, but like, we hope that we can convert them into someone that appreciated this day and, and sort of is excited about it. So we're, um, I think we use a similar tactic in the hotel space uh, as, as, as you're referencing. Um, and I, I think it's part of the mix. I think in, in at the lodge, we don't have to do it and we're already kind of, we're at hundred percent direct at rates that are, that are great. And we're selling out on weekends anyways. If we wanted to sell more on weekdays, we may have to sort of, you know, use more intermediaries and kind of do other, kind of do other things. Got it. Got it. And how, how do you approach, how do you approach retention? Like, like, so a guest comes in, are there things that you do have systems in place to, to try to get them to come back again and again? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one is making sure they have a great stay, right? <laughs> Yes. Like, it, it sort of starts starts in the trolley ends there but um if they have a great stay and you don't have any any way of uh communicating with them then you've lost the opportunity to market to them you know again so we have a, a variety of sort of touch points where we try to capture people's uh email addresses um and it happens sort of on pre-arrivals for the check-in process it happens on um even now you like you get your room keys on your phones that you know we get some of that data and then even our front desk we run sort of contests to make to see what percentage of emails we get as like email capture for our guests uh because so everybody knows on a property how important it is to, to get that data awesome and a one one last question just on the, the marketing front is and i we've kind of already touched on it but um I feel like we've touched, I, I want to ask, how do you ensure you're as booked solid as you possibly can be? I mean, it's pro- probably just a mix of all of these things we've been talking about. Um, so yeah. This will, so there's, might- there's something there's something in hotels that's very different than, than restaurants. And honestly, it's one, I've always wondered why restaurants haven't been able to pull this off and maybe it's just sort of consumer edu- education um, and people would rebel, but uh, <laughs> We, revenue management is uh, is a whole sort of submarket of the hotel business, and you see it in the airlines. But like, if you think, so basically, everybody must probably paid a different price for your the hotel room, and and like if you think about an airline, the person sitting next to you must probably paid a different price, and yet somehow we're, it's like the exact same service. There's no difference between you and the person next to you in terms of the product or the service that you're getting, and yet you totally you paid you definitely paid different prices. And yet we're okay with that in the airline space and we're okay with that in the hotel space. But for the restaurant, your eight o'clock reservation on a Saturday costs as much as your like Tuesday at a five o'clock. And you're like, why is that? Um, but so in the hotel space, what we do to ensure that we're fully booked is we're constantly like revenue managing. So looking at what we call pace, which is our like pickup or like number of reservations we get per, per day and per week. And then we're like looking at every single day in the future and figuring out like which days are picking up and which ones aren't. And so like weekends, which we know have a lot, lot higher demand. And if it's picking up too quickly, we'll actually like raise prices so that we kind of like glide into that weekend 
with like optimal revenue at the highest rate, sort of with the most occupancy. And sometimes it's not always like occupancy. Sometimes we, because rate occupancy, it, it, there's more labor to like clean a room and turn a room and it's more impactful on the property. Sometimes we'd rather get more rate out of it and lower occupancy, but we're kind of constantly finessing promotions and pricing and distribution based on uh, future bookings. It's really cool. It's kind of like a super sophisticated version of happy hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, awesome, Phil. Well, this has been awesome. So I just, uh, I'd, I'd love to know what what's next on the horizon for you, and, and what are you, what are you most excited about? So uh, we've uh, we've made a lot of promises, um, and you know, I full conviction and confidence that we're going to follow through on all of them. But we're, um, I mean, that's what's on the horizon is 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 executing on the projects that we've acquired and the business plans that we're putting into motion, uh, in particular in uh, in Hawaii, in San Diego, in Bermuda, and in Bowery. And that's what the next like, you know, 18 months is, is gonna look like. Um, the crazy part is, you know, while we're doing that, we need to still kind of grow the business and see what else we can kind of sign up over that period of time. But, you know, priority one is, uh, is getting all of these projects uh, in a good place. Awesome, I actually, oh. I have one one curiosity that I wasn't planning on. Do you have you have you ever heard of like revenue generating activities? Like what do you like uh like yoga Sunday yoga at the pool for ten bucks uh, ten bucks a head? <laughs> uh no, well so like like for a service based business, it's it's probably it's prospecting and it's speaking to prospects and it's actually getting on sales calls. It's like like the the the, the tasks that move the needle as opposed to sort of indirectly move the needle like like social media or blogging or stuff that's kind of a bit more inbound and passive. And I, I curiosity just came to mind for me, which is just what are the tasks for you that, you know, have the biggest impact on moving the needle? Does that make sense? In the hotel space? Just in for like the, you. For the for for, guests or for dovetail and like deals? I just think specifically for you, like if you were to apply the 80-20 analysis to like the things you do, like what what are, are the one or two that like, like if you could just focus your time on those, it would just have like a huge flywheel effect. I think for me personally, it's about setting the vision and the business plan um, and then making sure that we have the resources and talent to execute on that business plan. Um, and then letting, and then letting the, the sort of the, the talent and our teams follow through on that. Um, and only, and hopefully only kind of like course correcting or micro adjusting along the way. Um, that's, that's sort of how I see my role personally. Um, and I think that's how, you know, I've got a great team now, which is, which is, which is, which is awesome and fun. Um, but that's what we want to focus on. Um, I want to focus on letting the team sort of bring these business plans to life. Um, and I want to just make sure everyone has the resources that they need to, to pull it off. Awesome. Awesome. And are you, are you up for a quick round of rapid fire cues? I can try. Okay. Okay. Um, here we go. What is your favorite alcoholic drink? Australia uh, Boulevardier. What was the first one? Boulevardier. Okay. But you qualified it somehow. I said most probably. <laughs> oh, most probably. Okay. I was like, I thought you said I'm Australian Boulevardier. And I was like, what's that? Uh, what's your, okay. Well then what's your, what's your favorite bourbon in the Boulevardier? Um, what's on the shelf? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
so not too picky. Uh, okay, what book or resource has had the biggest impact on your success? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, the ones that I have read multiple times that I've got like on my bookshelf is like uh, Branson's like Rebel Rules, um, Chip Conley's uh, uh, who, who founded Jadaviv Hotel Chain. Um, um, the, the title now is eluding me, but there's a, there's a hospitality sort of book that he, that he wrote that uh, I find myself reading every, every couple of years. Um, and then there's an older book called What They Don't Teach You in Harvard Business School that I always found uh, as, a, as a reminder that like, when, it, when it comes down to it, business is about like relationships and negotiations and like, uh, you know, most, mostly things that they don't teach you in school. <laughs> so those are like three books that I find myself rereading um, uh, frequently. Awesome. What's, what's one thing you've changed your mind about in the last six to 12 months? Um, I, I would say that I am now a firm believer and proponent in, uh, working remotely. Um, we were doing it because we were sort of an agile startup and our team, like was already kind of like kind of loose. And we have, we, we set up the tech so that we could work from wherever and we were working on multiple projects. So we were kind of constantly like moving between our projects pre-pandemic. And I think there was a period of time during the pandemic where I was a little nervous about team culture and being able to build and like um, our head of acquisitions moved to Austin. And I was just like, man, how's this going to work out? And I was a little nervous about it. Um, and we still make a point of getting together like every, once a quarter if we can and like kind of keep the culture going. But the ability to work remote is it's it's like. It, it, it's no, I'm no longer hesitant about a leadership team that is not, not all in the same office uh, every single day. I mean, frankly, I think we're actually even more productive because we're not like all on top of each other and, you know, in an echo chamber. Totally. Um, and it's, 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 like, it's like a time machine, really. When you yeah. don't have to travel and stuff like that. It's pretty incredible. Uh, one last one, which is uh, say the government gives you $50,000 to grow your business tomorrow. How do you spend that money? Um, on the, on the dovetail side, it would be someone to help take care of our administration so that all of the, so that the leaders on the team can focus on what they're great at and what they love, whether that's creative or construction or development or acquisitions and sort of just moving all of that, uh, administration off all of our desks. I think on the property, on the property side, uh, it would, um, like, I mean, I'm sure you're seeing it, but like, if there was a way to, you know, help with staffing at all of our properties, mm -hmm. primarily in, in like the restaurants and the kitchens, mm -hmm. uh, we would, we would do that in a heartbeat. Uh, we're just, you know, desperate for more help on all of our properties. Yeah. We're, we're kind of thinking of turning nimble into a, a recruitment agency or something. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah. yeah. And finally, is there is there anything that I should have asked you but I didn't? Um, I don't know. This was this was kind of fun and a little different than some of the other conversations I've had. So I appreciate the the the, the different background, but also the different angle on some of the questions too. Awesome. Where where should people go to learn more about uh, you and what you're up to and potentially connect with you? 
So our website, dovetailandco.com, um, has an email uh, sort of a contact us. So you can send me emails through that. That'll actually go directly to my inbox. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Inst We've got like a Dovetail Instagram, but it's not that active. We're more focused on the property stuff. Um, so it's probably the website and LinkedIn are probably the two best ways to get a hold of me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Phil, Phil, I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and I look forward to, to chatting with you again soon. Cool. Thanks a lot, Kyle. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Guest Getter. I'm your host, Kyle Guilfoyle. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. As always, you can head over to guestgetter.co to check out the resources in this episode's show notes and sign up for our weekly newsletter. That is it for today. We'll see you next time.